Coming up. It's much more personal than I expected it to be. His eyes were were looking around the room, and it's a very small room. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. On his way home from Bible study with his dad, 24-year-old Donovan Parks decided to check an errand off his list. He stopped at a Walmart in Milledgeville, Georgia, to pick up some pet food. It was just another Thursday night. Until it wasn't. It was in front of this house just after 10 o'clock Thursday night that gunshots rang out. At that Walmart, Parks had offered to give a couple younger guys a ride home. He recognized one of them from an old job at a Burger King, and he never suspected he was putting himself in danger. The people inside ran out and found 24-year-old Donovan Corey Park lying in the middle of the street, a gunshot blast to his head. Parks would die from that gunshot wound, and his attackers had driven off in his car. Eight hours later, the Bibb County Sheriff's Department found Park's blue Acura Vigor behind the Huddle House on Jeffersonville Road in the old Lakeside Park area. Whoever abandoned it first set it on fire, and as you can see from this video, when firefighters arrived on the scene, it was still burning. Jeremy Campbell, you've done a ton of reporting on the case that we're looking at today, and we'll get into a lot of it, but let's start all the way back in 1996. This is a tragic story, but you reported that the whole thing started with an act of kindness. Take me back to that day and and tell me what happened. It it all started in a small town, the kind of town where going to Walmart at night was kind of one of the biggest activities that that people do. And that's exactly where the victim, Donovan Parks, uh, was. He was standing in line after church to buy cat food on his way home, and that is when he met two other men who were actually there not to shop for any food or anything to buy at Walmart. They were actually shopping for someone to kill. Uh, That was Marion Wilson and Robert Butts. And they told Donovan they needed a ride someplace, and uh, he gave it to them. He he said, sure, get get in my car. And um, 14 minutes after that, he was dead. He was shot in the middle of the street, uh, Milledgeville, Georgia, in a uh, small-town neighborhood, and it was actually his own father who who found his body later that night. It's just uh, heartbreaking, and, and the phrase you used was that they were, they were looking for somebody to kill. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there were a couple alleged motives, one being that these guys wanted to sell the car that Donovan, Bar- Donovan Parks was driving, the other being gang-related, right? Yeah, there are a few different theories. The uh, the gang theory held a lot of weight when this went to trial, and essentially the the belief was it could have been some type of of gang initiation proof that you're you're really um, in it for the wrong reasons that you are willing to go all the way for the gang, and in this case, all the way would mean the uh, the the gruesome, cold blooded murder of of shooting someone execution style in the middle of the street. One interesting point in all of this is that Donovan Parks was shot to death, meaning, you know, only one person could have pulled the trigger, either Robert Butts or Marion Wilson Jr. Do we ever learn who that was? What ends up being the significance of that detail when their cases go to go to court? To this day, no one knows which man it was. It could have been either one. 
and both were put to death. So I, I would consider that very significant to, to realize that it was one bullet, it was one shot, according to investigators. And the jurors in the Wilson trial were told that he was the gunman. But the Butts jurors, they also heard evidence suggesting that it was Butts, not Wilson, who was responsible for the death. So essentially, on the stand, each of these men were blamed as the person who pulled the trigger in front of two different sets of jurors. Well, that both of those things could not be true. But since it wasn't in the same trial, no one heard that. And you mentioned, of course, that they were both ultimately sentenced to death. With a lot of crime stories, the coverage sort of ends there. There's a murder, there's an investigation, there's a prosecution. But of course, that's that's never where the story truly ends. The lives of anyone who knew the victim are, are permanently affected. And of course, the perpetrators are serving out their sentences, going through appeals. All this to say, you, you sort of picked up this story in 2019. Bring us up to speed on everything that happens with these two men who were convicted all the way from the late 90s up until 2019. Well, it was a 23-year-long roller coaster ride. And, you know, they they spent all of those years behind bars going through the appeals process. And um, ultimately, both men were put to death. Although Marion Wilson, um, it's important to note, um, had a, a, a life event happen while he was behind bars. He had a child born just a few months after this shooting. So she was actually born when her father was in, in prison, in jail. And her entire life, he had been behind bars and she had been coming to visit him in, in, inside inside the Georgia jail, inside the, the state prison. And um, she was there outside the night of, of his death uh, representing the family. And it, it was, you know, it was a bit incredible to think that her entire relationship with her father um, was spent uh, with this with this conviction and death sentence hanging over their relationship. I have a clip to play of Marion Wilson Jr.'s daughter, Tykesha, speaking outside of the prison that day. Here's what she had to say. My daddy, Marion Wilson, was a very kind-hearted, gentle person. He's always been the type of daddy who just wants the best for his family, his child, and the best for himself, honestly. I don't understand why people feel the need to do certain things. I mean, although I do understand the circumstances of what's going on and everything like that, like everybody is having their emotions going on right now. And my daddy is just very loving. He doesn't have a harmful bone in his body. And if he's anything like me, he's goofy. He loves to play jokes. He likes to have fun. Just he's just a, a very uplifting person. He loves to help people. I love to help people. He likes to make people smile. Like he lights up the room when like when when we come and see him. He's he's very heart heartwarming. I don't understand why these people are doing this. So the day that this is all happening, the day of this execution is June twentieth, two thousand nineteen. Not long before that, you get a request to be a media witness. What exactly does that mean? So every time there's an execution, 
uh, the state of Georgia invites uh, um, uh, members of the media to, to come along and to come inside death row and to, to be in the room as the, uh, as the lethal injection is carried out. It's an act of transparency. Um, the spirit of the media witness is to be the eyes of the public and, um, and to bear witness to, um, on one hand, justice being carried out to the very end. And on the other hand, to be watching in the event that anything were to go wrong. And, you know, it's a, it's a way for the state to, uh, to open the doors and say, um, this is the process and you're invited to see every little detail. And we'd like you to share what happened, uh, to media around the state. So when I was asked to do this, I, I, I felt compelled. I felt called to open the doors a little bit wider. I, I thought it was an opportunity to be completely open and describe every detail that that I could see uh, for the entire day uh, through this process. And coincidentally, this was the 1500th execution in modern times in the United States, which made this case slightly more high profile, so to speak, um, than it may otherwise had been. It was a mile marker for our country. And that was all the more reason I wanted to uh, convey everything that happened in that room. I don't know that I'd ever heard or read such a detailed account of what actually happens during an execution, what, what happens inside that room. When you first got this request, did it sink in right away that, that you were being asked to watch a human being die? It did because I, I felt that in the pit of my stomach, knowing that was the ask. And, you know, I could have said no. And, and, and part of the, the process when uh, the, the invitation came in from the state was for me to determine, you know, do, do I accept this or do I, do I say, you know, no, that's a better match for another journalist. Um, and, and for me, I, I thought it was a, an opportunity to do exactly what you said and, and share, share every detail that I could minute by minute to fully shine light on this, this very behind closed doors American aspect of our justice system. Tell me a little bit more about the day of this execution, what does the process look like from your perspective from the point that, that you show up at the prison to, to be a media witness? All of the media witnesses gather in a parking lot, um, a grassy parking lot. And, you know, we receive updates on, on what's happening inside the prison. We are told when the last meal is served, we, are told details about the injection, the type of medication that will stop the the heart of the inmate who is to be put to death. And and we we wait. And probably after being outside in that grassy parking lot for maybe an hour, uh, a, a little little van pulls up that's just big enough for five or six people. We all climb on board. And we drive into the the depths 
of the prison. It's a very strange experience. The journalists, you know, they made small talk, but you, it was the kind of small talk that people make when everyone feels uncomfortable because we all knew what we were about to see. So from from there, the the van ride, it feels like half an hour. It was probably 10 minutes. Once it arrives at the, um, at the prison, we go inside a concrete walled room. And, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind, because I thought it was sort of strange, they had like cold cut sandwiches out for everyone to kind of snack on because it's a, it's a waiting period. I didn't have the the uh, the hunger to to take a bite of anything, but they did have that out for the media witnesses. We were all given two number two pencils and a small five by seven notebook, the kind that has those blue lines, kind of like in elementary school. And that's all we were allowed to have with us once we go inside the prison. Everything else we're asked to leave behind, all recording devices or cell phones, anything that we could communicate you know, with, with the outside world. So we have those items. We're sitting near those cold cut sandwiches and we're just waiting for time to pass. What's really happening is we're waiting on the Supreme court, the United States Supreme court to uh, possibly rule that this, this is all called off, but that, that never happened. And once we get word that that's not going to happen, well, that's when things pick up really quickly. And during all of this, are you aware that there are people protesting outside the prison. I know you mentioned that Marion Wilson Jr.'s own daughter was out there. You're you're not so aware of it because they have you arrive so early that the protesters haven't really set up yet. Um, I do remember maybe two or three people were outside when I got on the van and went inside, but um, it was it, it was not a protest yet. It was the... Uh, the the pre-protest people just starting to get there and um, just getting ready, you know, for for the event. So you're eventually taken from this waiting room into the actual execution chamber, where you're going to do your job as a media witness. Marion Wilson Jr. is brought in, and there's this moment that you see in a lot of movies and TV shows where an inmate who's about to be executed is given the chance to speak for the last time. Does that happen in real life? And and if it did, what did Marion Wilson? Junior say, it, it did happen. We one by one we filed into the execution chamber, and there's probably about thirty people in inside. Um, there's armed guards. Uh, there were several people who uh, appeared to be, you know, perhaps with the justice system. They were in suits, um, and also there were some individuals who were uh, who were part of the victim's family sitting sitting up front. Uh, so there's a lot of emotion in that room, and we're all sitting in wooden pews that look like they could be from from a church. Long pews made of wood, all facing one direction, and that direction is it's just like you might have seen on television in a in a fictional crime show. It's a glass window in the front of the room, probably about five feet tall, could be twenty feet wide, showing kind of a panoramic view of the execution chamber. And there is Marion Wilson, front and center, everyone staring in front of him. And when they started the process to answer your question, this was his opportunity to to make a statement, to give his his last words. And uh, he had already declined um, earlier in the day to do that. So this was it. This was the moment 
now or never, and and he chose to take it. Um, he he spoke to his family and his supporters, and he told them that he loved them. He said, "Death can't stop it. Nothing can stop it." And then he he declared his innocence. He said, "I never took a life in my life. They think they know better than me. Nobody escapes this life alive. See you all when I get there." That was the last thing he said. So I've read your account of all of this, and honestly, just reading it was difficult. I can't imagine being there in person for all of this. Can you walk us through what happens from that point on until you leave the room? It's much more personal than I expected it to be. His eyes were were looking around the room, and it's a very small room. He's He's going from person to person making direct eye contact. And as I said before, there is a lot of emotion in the room. The, the victim's family is, is toward the front. For, for them, this is after 23 years of, of waiting for justice. This is the moment. This is the time where, where the life that they lost due to this murder um, will, will, finally, will finally be venged by the justice system. Um, but in those moments, it, it, it was so quiet. It was a vacuum of sound. And it was very formal. Um, in all the processes, as you would expect, and as it should be, um, the warden would announce each step as 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 it happened, and we knew that uh, it, it was time for the um, injection to be made. Uh, they announced that it was happening, and just just as as that happened, Wilson he shouted out to the room, "About to be free." Technically, those were his last words. And that kind of echoed through that glass and, and we heard it, um, you know, in, in the entire room. What he had said before was through a microphone, but this you could just hear from, from his scream. And he kind of had a smile on his face and we were all just sort of waiting, but there's no narration. You're literally just watching the, uh, the drug take effect and, you know, watching slowly a a man die. It felt slowly. In reality, it was about 10 minutes from when the drug was injected until it was announced that, that he was, that he was dead. And, uh, the final announcement by the warden is that Marion Wilson, the execution of Marion Wilson was carried out by law. And then as soon as that announcement is made, there's curtains, um, that quickly close behind the glass and, it's not too different from curtains on a stage. Uh, it was very theatrical, which surprised me. The curtains quickly close, and our job as media witnesses will continue on the outside as we explain to others what happened. Um, so we, as soon as that curtain closed, uh, we were quickly told, okay, time to go, put back on the van, and driven what felt like at a high speed out of that prison back out front where we did see the protesters. We did see other media outlets. That's when you saw the crowd. So you ended up then producing a a podcast on this whole experience. It's titled number 1500 for anyone listening to this who wants to go uh, check it out and and learn more about this case and, and your experience. The last question, I guess, before, before I let you go is looking back on all of this, 
what do you want people to have learned or to take away from that podcast or from all of your reporting on this story, this execution? Three lives were lost on that night in 1996. One was a com- an innocent victim who was buying cat food after spending the night at church. And that's tragic and it's heartbreaking and it should never have happened. But there were two other lives who lost, who, who were lost because of that act. So it's just, you know, justice, justice comes at a cost on so many levels. So I, you know, I, I thought about the victim's family so much and, and the pure hell that they had lived through for all of those years waiting for closure that it took 23 years to get. And I also thought about the daughter of Marion Wilson, whose entire relationship with her father was spent with her father behind bars on death row. And, you know, it's, it's, there's a, there's a lot of, of ways to look at the justice system. There's a lot of ways to look at the death penalty, but everything about this story to me was tragic. Jeremy Campbell, thank you for sharing the story with us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Daily Crime. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe, leave us a review, and tell that friend of yours who's obsessed with true crime podcasts. If this is your first time tuning in, we have a new episode every single weekday. If you're still looking for more after that, check out our weekly podcast, True Crime Chronicles. It covers a new case every Monday. And if you're interested in learning more about the case we talked about on this episode, the podcast I mentioned earlier, again, is called Number 1500. You can find it wherever you listen to The Daily Crime. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. Redmond.